little show and tell this morning. Got my Lego kit. Good morning, class. <laughs> you laugh, you're going to feel like you're in class this morning. Um, Michael has a song that he leads us in, and it's, uh, it's in regards to God's word moving forth in power. And we sing that song here because it's, it's a heart cry that we would have God's word go forth in such a degree that it actually changes us and affects us and the lives of people we interact with. So in my prayer for this week, not that it's unique to any other week, but specifically even this morning, that God's word would go forth in power. I'm going to invite you to pray with me that way. Would you do that? God, that you would use your word specifically to ignite our imagination. We would plead for that. That we would be able to set aside all the things we've read and watched this last week. All the news stories, all the internet interactions and social media interactions, God, that all those things could be set aside so that you would captivate our mind. Use your word to do that. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Why are you here? I mean, I know why you're here, but why are you here? Why did God create you? What's your unique purpose? Well, he created you for his glory, obviously. For his glory. Every human life, every human life exists for the glory of God. Now, that does not mean that every human life fulfills that responsibility. Every human life exists for the glory of God. But not every single one does. Far from it, regrettably. But when you, as a believer, when you understand that you are here for His glory, and that as your Creator, He has the authority and the right to declare who you are, you do gain a sense of your purpose, that your life is not yours alone, that it's not just for yourself, but there's a much, much larger issue at stake to accomplish the purposes for which He puts you here. Can I remind you this morning that He knows that you're here? He knows you, and He intends good for you? That's His desire? He does, because you're precious to Him. Now, that aside, as this all relates to the Genesis story and, and the creation account that we're continuing to explore, in order for humans to live and to flourish and to fulfill and accomplish the purposes for which he placed us on this planet, everything would need to be prepared in such an intricate, intricate, exquisite way. It would have to be dialed in, prepared to perfection in order for human life to exist on this planet. Isaiah captures that thought. Let me take you to this verse on the screen. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, 
He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but watch this, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Formed to be inhabited. Everything would need to be in perfect balance. Every atom would need to be in place. Thus the aspect of forming and shaping it from the void and the waste place that it was. If we use the phrase terraforming, that would be accurate. Forming, terraforming the planet in order to be inhabited. So just bear with me on these words from Isaiah 45, 18. Look at this, five words, formed it to be inhabited. The Hebrew word that's used here, this particular one is yostar. You see it in your notes this morning and you see it on the screen. That particular definition is Isaiah's capturing an image here. He's capturing the image of a potter sitting at a wheel, working with clay and squeezing the clay and forming and shaping it, molding it into what he wants it to be. And that's completely a consistent image with what you find throughout the Bible. But let's just stay in Isaiah. Look with me at Isaiah again, Isaiah 45, 12. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. Or this one, Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who there's that same word, who yastar you, you personally, the potter at the wheel, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. For that to be a reality, for the heaven and earth to be ready for mankind, creating mankind on this planet, everything would have to be super-tuned, dialed in for humans to exist, especially for all forms of animal life. Well, just how finely tuned is our universe? That's what I'd love to get into with you just for a little bit this morning. The the fine-tuning, let's comprehend what we mean by this term, fine-tuning. Perhaps you've heard it before, the dialing in of the universe and this planet. What did God have to do to make this place habitable? I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Since we spent some time looking at the galaxies and the stars a a few weeks ago and understanding the, the giant stars, the super giants, and the smaller stars like our own, Let's use the image of the galaxy and let's use the image of the stars to help us understand that, to grasp at this aspect of fine-tuning, especially the fine-tuning of the universe, so that it can be inhabited. The stars that we discussed are not just for ornamentation. Although they create a beautiful backdrop to the sky and it provides light for us, that's all very wonderful. And it provides the times and the seasons according to what Scripture says, but it's not just for that. There's a greater role that they serve in keeping things in balance. We need the supergiants, like that huge one I described to you, Musifi, the, the big dog, the one that was 1,100 years to travel around with a jet at 700 miles an hour. Those big supergiants we need because they hold in balance the smaller stars like our sun. But for such a wide variety of the stars to exist depends on a finely tuned ratio. 
between the gravitational force in the universe and the electromagnetic force in the universe. You may not know it yet, but the ratio between those two forces has to be excruciatingly, extremely fine-tuned. It's so crucial that you wouldn't exist if they weren't dialed in. You may not know that, but you will in a moment. If I said the ratio of deviation had to be somewhere around between those two forces, one in a million, you, you might go, well, that's pretty massive. That, that imagery I can get in my mind, 10 to the sixth power, I can kind of wrap my mind around one in a million. What if I said it had to be one in a billion, that the deviation couldn't be greater than that? Then you'd be going like, wow, it kind of staggers my imagination. What if I said it had to be one in a trillion? Then your eyes begin to glaze over. Because even though we hear trillions in the news on a regular basis, we tend to lose perspective when the zeros get that big. In actuality, the world's leading astrophysicists, the world's leading astronomers, they tell us that the deviation ratio between those two forces, the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force, in order for human life to exist, must be astoundingly precise, dialed in to one part in 10 to the 40th power. You don't look impressed. I'm gonna help you be impressed. I want you to get an idea of what's going on here. Hear that again. For life to exist on this globe, there must be a precise balance between the gravitational force and the electromagnetic force to the maximum amount of deviation between the two can be no more than a ratio between one with 40 zeros behind it. Just do a visual with me. Lay your eyes on the screen and look at that. It's a lot of zeros, but I still can't quite relate. I'm like you, I'm not a physicist. Maybe somebody here is a physicist and you can come up and lecture me on this afterwards, but I want you to bear down on this because this will be on the test, okay? <laughs> Pay very close attention. Physicists tell us, they insist actually, that the factor of deviation, of the coexistence ratio between those two is what is required for the small stars to be held in balance with the big stars. So that we understand the role that they play between the gravitational forces produced by each of those bodies in order to be held in balance. And the gravitational force is moderated by the electromagnetic force. I need to give you an illustration. Dr. Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist. He, he is truly a rocket scientist. Happens to be a Christian also. He wrote a lot of books on astronomy, and yet he understands in the world of physics that most of us can't relate unless physicists give us illustrations. So to illustrate one to the 40th power, he used the illustration of dimes. I happen to hold a dime in my hand right now. He said, imagine doing this. Imagine taking a dime and laying it down on the floor next to where you're at. 
lay another dime next to it, edge to edge, all the way across the surface of the entire lower 48 states. Then cover Alaska, then cover Canada, then cover Mexico, and continue doing that, piling them on top of each other, edge to edge, until they go to the top of Mount McKinley. That's 20,000 feet, also known as Denali in Alaska. After you've done that, continue doing that 12 times more. Now, that will get you to 240,000 feet. Then do that five times more. Pretty soon, you're going to find yourself into outer space. He said, then continue doing that until you bump into the surface of the moon. Got that image in your head? Continue doing that on one billion surface areas the size of the lower 48 states, Alaska, Mexico, Canada. Then take one dime, paint it red, put it in the midst of that massive pile, and invite one of your friends to go find it. That is an image of one with 40 zeros behind it. The likelihood of that person finding that dime is the amount of deviation that's allowable for life to exist between the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force in order for humanity to survive on this planet. Does our God know what he's doing? Does our God dial things in for our existence? Hear this. He ends his illustration this way. Change it at all by a deviation of even the smallest fraction and human life cannot exist. No wonder Dr. Francis Schaeffer said this. I want you to see his quote. It's in your notes also. He said this. If I had an hour to spend with a person on an airplane, a person who didn't know the Lord, I would spend the first 55 minutes talking about man being created in the image of God and the last five minutes of the presentation of the gospel of salvation that could restore man to that original intended image. It's good. Go with me to Genesis 1, verse 24. Look at what God did to dial in life to exist. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, noticeably, there's more than just one action going on here. 
There seems to be so much activity going on during this final day, the sixth day of creation. From our perspective, compared to day one, it's an abundance of activity. When we looked at day one last week, I said, it just looks like God just walked over and turned on the light switch, and yet we discovered there was so much more going on than that. Well, we find the same thing on day six. There's a lot happening on day six. So let's stay with that phrase, let the earth bring forth, Genesis 1.24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. That means the entire animal kingdom, everything that functions on this planet outside of humans is being created in that moment out of the ground, literally from the soil. That's amplified in chapter 2. Look at this, chapter 2, verse 19. Out of the ground, out of the dirt of the earth, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And then it's broken down into three categories of land animals. This is not the fish, mind you. This is just the land animals, the species. So the first category as mentioned here is cattle. And we're not thinking of Betsy the milking cow here. It is speaking of cows, but it's not limited to cows. It's a general term for domesticated animals. So this is speaking of sheep and horses and and goats and dogs. You see the word on the screen. It's the word behema in the Hebrew language. It's a quadruped. You have a quadruped at home? You do if you have a dog or if you have a horse or a goat. This is what it's talking about, the domesticated animals. And then the next category is the creeping things. This would be anything that doesn't have legs or very short legs, and so they appear to be crawling. So we can put insects into that category, but also you would find walruses and reptiles and amphibians, certainly the snakes and the salamanders. But look with me on the screen. This is the way God broke it down in Leviticus chapter 11. The swarming things that swarm on the earth, the mole, the mouse, the great lizard, the gecko. When I read that, I wondered if the people at Geico know that the gecko is in the Bible. (laughs) The crocodile, the lizard, the sand, reptile, and the chameleon. And, And then the third category, that's the beast of the earth. That would be the wild animals. Those were not intended to be domesticated like lions and bears and Tyrannosaurus rex. And rhinos, and I think house cats might fall in that category too. (laughs) No kidding, you can't herd them. It's a a conundrum to call them domesticated because they do what they're going to do. All of these life forms created on the very same day. The Bible says they're called forth from the dirt, from the dust of the earth. The carbon base crustal layer of this planet. All life, all observable life, all known life is made of complex biological molecules based around carbon atoms. Whether you know it or not, you are a carbon-based life form made from the dust of the earth. God said specifically to Adam, This is how I made you, Adam. Look with me on the screen at this. Genesis 3.19, for you are dust, and to dust you will return, fearfully and wonderfully made to be sure. 
every single one of us, fearfully and wonderfully made. But you came from dust, and if Jesus doesn't come back first, you're going to return to dust. That's what we're constructed from, all life form on this planet. The primary element in your biological system are carbon atoms. Second illustration. I borrowed this from my grandson, Caden. Caden has a lot of Legos in his bedroom. And if you're not careful where you step, you might find them. Remarkable things about Legos is that they contain all these little parts that can be put together. Most of us are very familiar with Legos, and we understand part of the imagery that's going to come out of this. I'm going to have you bear with me on this illustration. Legos, we understand, that have single pieces can be used to make a multitude of different things. Put together, the pieces construct different images, and and they construct different mechanisms. But if you'll bear with me on this particular image, if you will, God uses a Lego, a carbon-based Lego, we'll say, to construct life the myriad of different life forms, the carbon atoms that come together, where a a single carbon atom might be a Lego piece, when God used the carbon-based compounds, it's the entire Lego kit. And each one that comes together can make a different shape, a different form but it's all made from carbon-based atoms. The same Lego piece is used to construct a multitude of life forms, from plants to animals to insects to humans. Carbon is abundant on our planet. Each carbon atom has a different purpose. It's no accident whatsoever that carbon is readily found in the crustal layer of this planet. It's the building block of life. So scientists tell us that carbon originates from the core of stars. I don't know. I've never been to a star. I have to take their word for it. But that's what they tell us. They haven't been there either. But what they tell us is that there's a a fusion reaction that takes place in the core of stars. Here's the part where my eyes kind of glaze over a little bit. Three helium atoms, they combine together, and when they fuse together, those three helium atoms, they'll make a carbon atom. But if they're not fine-tuned in such a specific way, they could bounce off each other and never accomplish what they're intended to accomplish. This is the part I really kind of dial in on. The slightest change to either the strong nuclear force or the electromagnetic force would alter the energy levels, resulting in a complete loss of the carbon atoms. The values are so precisely fine-tuned that carbon is produced. Here's the part I want you to catch. There is only one in all the universe one viable element in the universe capable of bonding with itself to such a degree that it forms a stable chain sustainable for life. That one element is carbon. 
Only carbon, when it's oxidized by oxygen, yields the energy necessary to sustain the life of warm-blooded creatures. So when Isaiah writes in 4518, he formed it to be inhabited, it implies that every aspect of life, every single aspect of our environment has been intricately designed to sustain life. Everything from the air that we breathe to the water that we drink, even the atoms that we come from, which is made of carbon. So along comes verse 26, and God has everything in place. The large stars hold in balance the small stars. The stars are producing carbon. Carbon is found on the crustal layer of the earth. And verse 26 says, then God said, it's ready. Let us make man, let us make Adam in our image according to our likeness. Because the plants are growing now and the water is flowing. The waves are splashing on the shore. The air is crystal pure and it's time for man. Up to this point, everything God has done has been initiated by the words, let there be. But there's a major shift now in the words, in the language. Now it says, let us make. It's no longer let there be as it has been previously. Now it's let us. What is let us? It's a a collaborative expression. Something we're going to do together. Well, who is the us? Before we get into that, hear that. To this point, it's been let there be. Meaning there's been no creature-maker expression of relationship in any personal way. Let there be stars. Let there be grass. Let there be dolphins. Let there be water. But now it's let us make here. Until we come to this point, God's personal relationship is now demonstrated by speaking in relational terms. Let us make man in our image, collective. And for the very first time in the Bible, God introduces himself in relationship. And he defines himself with plural pronouns, us and our, let us make, revealing that God has within himself, within his very nature, relationships. And that can only occur when there's more than one in the Godhead. So God is deliberately using this plural form in his actions, and it opens wide the door of plurality of the Godhead, the Trinity. We spent a fair amount of time on that a few weeks back, so I'm not going to go back into that, but catch what it's clearly stating. It's clearly saying, let us make man, let us make Adam in our image. The Hebrew word Adam is actually Adam, and you see this up on the screen, you see this in your notes as well. It it means of the earth. If you know of somebody with the name Adam, that their name in Hebrew means of the earth. It's a generic term, and it just represents mankind or all of humanity. It became the name of the very first human. So God said, let us make Adam in our image. In other words, the Adam species of God's creation. 
it's going to be made different than everything else. Everything else has been let there be. This one's going to be let us make this specific life form. Although still made from the building blocks, if you will, the, the Legos of the earth, this particular one is going to be made in the image of God, setting it apart from all other creation. So Genesis 1.26 says, in our image, according to our likeness. And you see two three-word statements there. It takes three words in the English language for one word in the Hebrew language. The very first Hebrew word that's used there is salam or salam. This particular one, it means what you think it means, a phantom, a resemblance, something that's a copy or a representative figure. It's a good point to ask this question. What is the image of God in you? Dr. Fruchtenbaum has a quote I want to share with you that captures the idea that there's the image of God within you internally and externally. Let me show you his quote. The outward image of God includes these aspects, that man can have a continuous directive gaze upward, that man has the capacity for facial expressions, that man has a sense of shame and can blush that he has speech and that he can exercise dominion. The inward image of God in man includes immortality, intellect, self-consciousness, and the ability to reason, emotions, will, morality, and spirituality. Now the phrase, to our likeness, in our image, according to our likeness, it, it represents three English words again, but one word in Hebrew, and this particular word begins with a K. and. It, it gives you the same imagery. It means pretty much what you think it would mean, a model, a copy, like manner. But it goes one step further. After our likeness drives home a point. When things are said in twos in the Hebrew language, like in our image according to our likeness, there really is a double emphasis here. It's like Jesus saying, truly, truly, like pay attention, pay attention. Well, this one is the double emphasis here, and it's driving home a point. Here's the point, the magnificent uniqueness of humans. And verse 26 reveals the purpose of it. Let them have dominion. Let them rule, verse, chapter 1, verse 26, and, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, that's part of your purpose here. To have dominion, go with me, stay with verse 27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Question, if God created Adam, male, the man, on the sixth day, when did he create the women? When did he bring Eve into the picture? We'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment, but stay with this thought. You're created in the image of God. And part of that image is to rule or have dominion over this earth that he's gifted us with, to be the authority figure over this beautifully, intricately, precisely designed planet. David is awestruck. We talked about this three weeks ago, King David, when he said he saw the stars in the sky, he said, what in the world is man that you take thought of us? That you would build the stars, that you would put the planets in space, that you would think 
of us? Well, in that same passage in Psalm 8, he goes on to say this, verse 6. You make him to rule over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas, none other of God's creation, none other, no elephant, no gorilla, no zebra is capable of ruling over and caring for this planet. Clearly, we were designed and built with a responsibility to bring God glory by caring for this creation. So God created Adam, Adam. When did he create the woman? Well, obviously, the male was created right after the animals were told on the sixth day. He called forth the man from the earth. And God brought forth that first man, and he's perfect, immensely complex. You're built with great complexity, guys. God designed you that way. Your human eye alone is fascinatingly complex. I think I told you a couple of weeks ago that Darwin believed that the human eye threw off his entire theory that we would arrive from the origin of the species because the human eye was so incredibly complex. He said, it absolutely undoes my theory. But back to Adam, he's, he's, according to what I understand, built fully grown, fully functioning. Not a baby, not a child, not an adolescent, but a completely functioning man. I know that because of chapter 2. Let me show you this. Chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. I think I've told you before that the power to name something constitutes authority. There's an authority going on here. God gave the authority to Adam to even name the creatures. And here's why I say a fully functioning man, fully functioning intellect with a massive vocabulary. Smarter than you, I think. Smarter than me, because I'm going to get stuck after zebra or hippopotamus or platypus. How does he do that? Well, he's built perfect by God, perfect in every possible way. Perfect muscle structure, perfect teeth, perfect skin, perfect eyesights, perfect emotion, perfect intellect, perfect heart. Yet he's lonely. There's a loneliness there. And God identifies that. A loneliness that, that cannot be fulfilled from any other part of God's creation. Even though God says it's all very good, Adam's lonely. And as astounding as all the other forms are, all the other creation of God that he pronounces very good, as intricate and as complex and as vast and extremely fine-tuned as the world is, there was nothing like a woman. Man, ladies, I thought you'd be jumping all over that one. Like, amen, right? There isn't. 
Adam's lonely, and so vast is the gulf that even the most remarkable created animal, so vast is the gulf between an animal and a human that God declared the only way for mankind to be complete would be to have another of the same species, but intentionally designed to be different enough to be a marvelous counterpart to the male. He needed a female. And not just for procreation, as it is in the world of animals, but as a co-ruler, as a co-intellectual, to have dominion with him over the earth and alongside him. So quite subtly, you see the Bible saying something here. This passage is actually indicating that no animal of any form that God had created to this point could ever match a human at any level, nor could any of the other species ever evolve to become a human. So God completes his creation by taking from the male and making a female. Scripture says, verse 21, chapter 2, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the creation of a woman is the immediate act of the creative power of God, and as I understand it, in the exact same day, on the sixth day, after all the other creative work was done, before God, according to Scripture, rested, He completes this work. I can back that up from Genesis chapter 5. Verse 1 says this, In the day when God created Adam, man, mankind, He made Adam in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and He blessed them and named them man or Adam. In the day they were created... So later in the same day, created Eve fully grown, fully functioning, absolutely flawless. So two perfect humans existing in a perfect environment, intricately designed by God. And verse 28 of chapter 1 says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every, every living thing that moves on the earth. Beginning to land the plane here, and I just want to give you a few things that you can pull back out. There's four distinctive elements here that we've looked at. Four distinct things about the creation of humanity. Number one. You're made in the image of God. That means made with a conscience, made with personality, with a soul, with a design for relationship. You were built to be in relationship. That's what God intended. But also given the role to be king over the earth, to have dominion, to rule with justice, and to rule in such a way that you would subdue creation. Here's the third one, made as a propagator of the human race, distinctly male, distinctly female, no blending of the two, 
God created two, male and female, in order to populate the earth. And here's the fourth one, made to be the recipient of God's blessing. So God's objective, His complete purpose in bringing about this magnificent, finely tuned creation is that we would have relationship with Him and with each other for all eternity. That's His purpose. That's His design. This is going to feel like a hard shift, but stay with me on this. Remarkably, we're told in the book of Revelation that in the final days of this planet, everything is going to perish. Everything in the universe will cease to exist. Revelation actually records that the stars are going to fall from the sky, the sun is going to cease to shine, the moon won't give off its brilliance anymore, and the whole universe is going to roll up like a scroll and go out of existence. Now, making that up, look with me on the screen, Revelation 6.13, and the stars of the sky fell, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Peter goes on to record that all of it's going to melt with a fervent heat. It's going to be dissolved, in other words, uncreated. Keep this imagery. All the electromagnetic force energy, all the strong nuclear force energy, all the weak nuclear force energy, and the gravitational force, all of the elements, all of the atomic energy it took to build this place, uncreated, out of existence. Watch Peter's description, 2 Peter 3.8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Every living thing, every green thing, every plant, every tree, every occupant of the sea, every land animal, everything in the universe will go out of existence. But not you. You were built for eternity. You were made for more. So all of the atoms in the universe will cease to exist. But not you. So as a follow-up to that massive piece of information, Peter, who walked with Jesus and studied under Jesus, asked, a fantastic question. Look at his follow-up question, verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Thank you, God, that that's in the future. See, Peter's echoing what he knows God's standard is. And here's what God's standard is. 
you are the main character. You are the main character on this stage, the center stage in the midst of this play on planet Earth. The, the, the text of Scripture spends more time on the creation of mankind than on any other element. All of chapter 2 is dedicated to that and it expands on that. Because your existence is so critical. The entire unfolding of creation becomes this stage for the saga of our relationship with God played out in your life as he demonstrates his mercy and his grace and his compassion. So when you look at his creation, you see massive intelligence. You see wisdom on a scale we can't begin to imagine. And you see his power. And you see his love for beauty and his softness in a butterfly. Or, or the remarkable gentleness of God and tenderness in the petal of a flower. And his pleasure in the laughter of a child. And you see his fearful power in a lightning bolt or the resonant thunder that comes afterwards when all of the earth shudders. All of creation puts God on display, but nothing in all this universe is made in the image of God except you. He chose you for that, that you would display him. Beyond being made in his image, which is an incredibly high privilege for us, we discover in humans, and in humans alone, that God is gracious. We discover that he's forgiving. We discover that he's merciful. He doesn't show forgiveness to an elephant. He doesn't show grace to a zebra. He does that for you. He knows when a sparrow falls, but much more than that, he's not willing that any of us would perish. And so he sends his son to die for us so that we would be in relationship with him. See, unless there was humans, we would never know that God could be gracious and kind and merciful. It's our unique identity. And that part of mankind cannot be reduced to a genetic code. You can't find that in a test tube. Created in the image of God, chosen to be in relationship with Him, it staggers my mind that the God who can fine-tune the electromagnetic force would humble Himself to become man on earth and die on a cross for us. That's a God worthy of your worship, isn't it, church? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for forgiveness where the analogies were so simple that they don't reflect your glory because I know you didn't build us out of Legos. You built us out of an incredibly fine-tuned system that only you could speak into existence. There's no way it could have just happened. We praise you for being our creator and our maker. And we praise you for drawing us into relationship with you. And for my brothers and sisters here who know you through the saving power of Jesus Christ, God, I pray that you would encourage their hearts that they would take on this week 
to remember that we were not only created in your image, but we were created for a purpose. And our purpose is to glorify you in every aspect of our life. And Father, equally at the same time, I pray for men and women who may not yet know you in this intimate, personal relationship kind of way. That you would make yourself known, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would reveal yourself and draw those individuals into relationship with you. That they can understand that they can have that relationship because of Jesus and in Jesus alone. Thank you for this time together. We pray your blessing on it. We ask this in Jesus' magnificent name and all God's people said, amen. Have a fantastic week, New Hope.